All right, we are in Second Peter chapter 2 tonight, and tonight is one of these messages where we're going to find out if we actually are uh, under the authority of the Scriptures or not, as an individual, as a church. Are, are we Bible believers here? Do we believe the Word of God? Is it the authority? Is it, is it the boss? Does it decide things? All right, well, this is where we find out. Because I'm going to say some things tonight that are going to make you un- might make you uncomfortable when you first hear it. But again... We have got to let the Scriptures correct us, guide us, fix us. And I'm going to share some things tonight that when, when shared with me, made me uncomfortable. But then when I looked and it's like, this is exactly what the Bible says. Now, I'm not here tonight changing any doctrines in our church. In fact, what I'm going to tell you will strengthen everything we preach at this church. Every doctrine we hold, I believe if we will put a behavioral practice that we're about to see into our church and into our lives, I believe it will strengthen everything we preach in this church. And I'm all about doing that kind of thing. And so, uh, a lot of stuff we want to cover tonight, but notice what it says in 2 Peter 1, or 2, verse 1. But there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and shall bring upon themselves Swift destruction. We see a warning here about those who would privily bring in Danville heresies. Wouldn't it be nice if we knew how they were going to do it? Well, actually, he's going to tell us how they're going to do it. He's going to tell us. And it says, And many shall follow their pernicious ways. This attempt to bring in these Danville heresies is done privily. It's going to work. Many are going to follow their pernicious ways by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. And through covetousness, here's how they're going to do it. Through covetousness, shall they with feigned words make merchandise of you whose judgment now of a long time lingereth not and their damnation slumbereth not. For if God spared not the angels that sinned but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. Right here it tells us they're going to do it with feigned words. They're going to use feigned words and they're going to make merchandise of people. That's how they're going to bring in their damnable heresies. And so in this passage, Peter tells us exactly how this is going to happen. How they're going to bring in damnable heresies with feigned words. And what I'm going to show you here, it's so simple. It's so obvious that many people have missed this. And it's simply because of disobedience and just lack of God's people sounding the alarm against this junk. And again, we often around here, how many times have we had conversations around here where we're talking about horrible teaching that's going on, even in Baptist churches, good people, good churches with good practices, with people we love, with great personalities and all these things going for them. And we just ask, how did this happen? How, how did they start teaching this stuff? How could, how did this get in to fundamental Baptist churches? Because let me tell you, I'm looking, I'm still not finding anything better than the independent fundamental Baptist churches. I'm not finding it. But yet, I'm, I am finding more and more junk being taught in independent fundamental Baptist churches. And I'm asking myself, how did this get in? And we shouldn't even have to ask because the Bible tells us how it's going to get in. And it's, it's, if you just take the Scriptures and look at Peter, said, this is how it's going to happen. And then all of a sudden, if we look and say, okay, well, maybe that should be the first place we look. And sure enough, that's exactly how it happened. We're, we're going to see this. And so... First, let's get a hold of this word feigned. We don't use that word feigned that often, but let's just look at all the mentions of it in the Scriptures. In 1 
Samuel 21, 13. This is talking about David. And it says, And he changed his behavior for, before them and feigned himself mad in their hands and scrabbled on the doors of the gate and let his spittle fall down upon his beard. So David made him think he was crazy. How? He feigned himself. So he, he pretended that he was crazy and he convinced them. In 2 Samuel 14, 2, And Joab sent to Tekoa and fetched thence a wise woman and said to her, I pray thee, feign thyself to be a mourner and put on now mourning apparel and anoint thyself with oil. Be as a woman that had a long time mourned for the dead. So here we have a woman feigning or pretending. She's pretending to be something that she's not. She was not a woman in mourning, but she feigned herself to be one. In 1 Kings 14.5, And the Lord said unto Ahijah, Behold, the wife of Jeroboam cometh to ask, of the, uh, ask a thing of thee for her son, for he is sick. And thus shalt thou say unto her, For it shall be when she cometh in that she shall feign herself to be another woman. So another example where the king's wife is pretending she's someone else. She's feigning. In Psalm 17.1, says, Hear the right, O Lord, attend unto my cry, Give ear unto my prayer that goeth not out of feigned lips. So what's he saying? I'm not just making this stuff up. I'm not pretending here. What I'm speaking is truth and and it's honest. This is an honest prayer right here. I'm not pretending anything. And then Luke 20.20 says, And they watched him and sent forth spies, which should feign themselves, just men, that they might take hold of his words, so that they might deliver him under the power and authority of the governor. So, they're feigning to be just men. Meaning, they're not just men, but they're going to pretend they're just men. And they went and they started asking him questions, just trying to trip him up, looking for something to accuse him of. And so, if we look at the definition of feign, it means in the sense of deceiving, fraud, craft, or deceit, guile, subtly, treachery. So, so when it's talking about feigned words... Let's go back to that verse again. It says, And through covetousness shall they with feigned words. So you could say they're like pretend words. Or or you could say that they're just kind of like deceptive words. We're going to use words of deceit. We're going to use words of deception. We're going to feign these words. We're going to make these words to be something that they are not. And they're going to use these things for deception. And I'm here today to tell you that one of the main ways false doctrine has crept into churches is from so-called theologians bringing in feigned words, or you could even say fancy theological terms. And and you say, well, what's wrong with using a fancy theological term to explain something? I'll I'll tell you exactly, because are we not supposed to be guided by the words of God? Isn't the scripture supposed to be the guide? If, listen, if your doctrine does not allow you to just speak the words of the Scriptures, then there's probably a problem with your doctrine. Do you all understand that? Now, I'm not saying that every theological term out there means damnable heresy. There are probably some theological terms out there that the definitions actually match up with the Bible. Okay, Don't straw man me with anything I'm going to say here tonight. But just understand... If I want to bring in a damnable heresy, it's going to be very difficult for me to take the pure words of God and to take the Scripture and to teach you 
that you can lose your salvation or whatever. Anything that the Bible doesn't teach, it's going to be hard for me to teach that with this. But if I can come up with new words, because again, too, I can't really use Bible words because if I use Bible words, the problem is the scriptures are so good at defining themselves all the time. I mean, the Bible constantly defines itself. It's, it's amazing the way it does that. So if I'm going to do this, I'm probably going to need to come up with different words. And it will help, too, if I can define that word myself. So typically what people do, and I'm going to show you examples of this, the way people bring in these feigned words or use feigned words to teach false doctrine is they come up with theological terms that they can define for you, and that's where you can add in your words. So let me define this term for you. And then I will add a definition which will not include the words of God. It will include things that are contrary to the Word of God. And then if I can get a group of people accepting it, accepting those terms, accepting those words, signing on to that doctrine that I came up with, or that theological term that I came up with, and then you all are convinced, well, I'm supposed to believe this way. That, I mean, folks, that's how it's done. And I'm going to show you this here in just, in just a little bit. So these, uh, what, look what it says in 2 Peter 2.18. Because I do, I believe these feigned words are, you could say, like just big, fancy theological terms. And look what it says in 2 Peter 2.18. For when they speak great, swelling words of vanity... What would those be? Now, the Bible doesn't tell us. And obviously, they're probably going to be different in different languages. But we're going to look at some great swelling words of vanity that a certain group of people, especially, you know, and let's just call them out right now. Calvinists love great swelling words of vanity. They love them. And we're going to make fun of them a little bit tonight. All right? And I don't think it's wrong to do that. So they speak great swelling words of vanity. They allure through the lust of the flesh, through much wantonness, those that were clean escaped of them who live in error. And let me tell you, you're probably not going to like some of the things that I want to call these people. And I am going to refrain from doing a lot of name calling tonight of Calvinists because you know when I, when I start talking about Calvinists, I want to call a lot of mean names. So I am just going to force myself to call these people, especially when we're talking about biblical words, exactly what the Bible calls them. And you know what he calls them in this passage? Verse 12, but these as natural brute beasts. These as natural brute beasts made to be taken and destroyed. Speak evil of those things which they understand not and shall utterly perish in their own corruption. So I'm just going to call them that tonight. I'm going to call them natural brute beasts. We are going to look tonight, the title of the message is just brute beasts and their feigned words. And notice he calls them natural brute beasts. Keep that, because the natural man that receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, they are foolishness unto him. Unsaved people, they can't get a hold of these words because these words are spirit and life. But you know what? They can learn great swelling words of vanity. They can learn fancy theological terms. These natural brute beasts, they'll use those things all day, but you know what they won't use? These. And I'm sick of these natural brute beast Calvinists too always wanting to correct the King James. Isn't that interesting? Maybe it's because they're not getting anything out of it because these words are spirit and life and these are dead men trying to read a living book and they can't do it. 
they can't do it. And let me tell you, I don't feel bad saying anything negative about Calvinists. I'm sick of Christians trying to act like Calvinists are our brothers. They are not my brothers. I do not believe they deserve to be treated as brothers. I do not believe that theology deserves any respect whatsoever from Bible-believing Christians. I don't believe it. I don't care what you say about history. I reject Calvinism. I reject Calvinists. And I just, I don't accept them as brothers. And we do. We need a revival of God's people going back to God's words the way He used them. Because it is very, very difficult to teach damnable heresy, and I don't even know if you can, using only the words of God. I don't know how you can do that. I, I think you have to add in other words. We know what God's words mean. The Bible tells us what they mean. God's Word always defines itself. I define fame for you just from reading all the uses of it. It's obvious, even though we don't really use that word today, just the way it's used in the Scriptures, by the time we get to 2 Peter, we know exactly what fame means. We know exactly, because the Bible defines itself. And so, 1 Corinthians 14, 8 says, For if the trumpet give an uncertain sound, who shall prepare himself to the battle? So likewise, except ye utter by the tongue... Words, easy to be understood. How shall it be known what is spoken? For ye shall speak into the air. And let me tell you, these Calvinists are always coming in, Greeking out together, using their Greek terms, their Hebrew terms, their fancy theological terms. You know what they're doing? They're giving an uncertain sound is what they're doing. And God says we ought to use words that are easy to be understood. Well, you people are so simple. You know, you, you, know, you people, you're not as smart and theological as we are. You don't know what any of these doctrines are. How don't you? How do you not understand these things? Maybe I don't know these words because they're not in the scriptures, and I study the Bible. Maybe that. Maybe that's why. And what these brute beast theologians have been doing for centuries is replacing God's words with their own fancy, made-up words that you cannot find in the scriptures. And this enables them to define those words for you. And if they can convince you that the word is good. Or even when it comes to something biblical. There are things that the Scriptures teach that unfortunately we have allowed theologians to use a theological term to describe that teaching. And the theologians have successfully demonized those terms. And so now people, that once you, once you say those words, if we accept those words instead of what the Scriptures actually say, it is, you, can't, you can't demonize these words. But they can demonize a theological term, and that happens a lot. So we got to watch out for the terms that we use and accept. Let's use those words of the Scriptures. And so if they can convince you the Word is good, then they can lead you to believe that the Bible teaches whatever they associate with that Word. And so we're, let's look at some examples. Here, here's what I did. This was interesting. I just went online, and I, I found a website that showed like this whole index of theological terms. And basically what I did, I didn't even know what half of them were. I read through them. So have you even been to seminary? <laughs> Thankfully I haven't. Because I, I didn't learn this brute language of the brute beast is what it is. But I'm, I'm, what I did, I would just randomly pick the most crazy sounding words. And let me tell you, they were all related. To, they were pretty much all related to two doctrines. You know what they were? Teaching on the Trinity and Calvinism. Which I thought was very interesting. Because isn't it interesting too, in the subject of the Trinity, which also is not a Bible term, in the, in the discussion of the Godhead, in the, in, the, in the subject 
of the nature of God himself, what is it that these theological clowns always do? They will hear you say something that's literally spelled out in the Scripture. And then you just expound on it a little bit and say, I believe that. And then what do they do? Oh, you believe. And then they give you this great big theological term. Well, I didn't know I believed that. You social Trinitarian? I don't know what that means. You know? Yeah, well, the social Trinitarian, it teaches this and this and this and this. It's like, oh, okay, all I did was read that verse and said I believed it. They do that kind of stuff to you all. That's not fair. That's not right. And, then, and I, I've had people just, you know, tribute, I mean, you, you believe in tritheism. I don't even know what that is. You know, and let's go through some of these terms, alright? Because most of it is associated with Trinity, which people use to teach, slip in all kinds of nasty stuff, and Calvinism. But this was the first one I saw. I'll probably say half of these wrong. But go ahead and make fun of me, I don't care. A diaphora. Sounds like a diuretic problem to me. But anyway, uh, a, a diaphora. Y'all don't even know anything about that? You simpletons, y'all need to go to cemetery. I mean, seminary. It's actions or beliefs which are neither commanded nor forbidden in Scripture, and thus left to the liberty of the conscience. Issues of theology or morals to which Scripture does not speak definitively. Now, did that just help everybody out learning that word of diaphoria? How about amiralism? Amaraldism. That's a system of theology introduced by Moise Amirat in which the Calvinist doctrines of total depravity, unconditional election, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints are affirmed along with, contrary to Calvinism, the teaching that Christ died savingly for all people, making salvation hypothetically possible for all. While only of the elect are brought to faith and actually saved, sometimes called amaryllism, hypothetical redemption, hypothetical universalism, or four-point Calvinism. So basically, if you believe in all of Calvinism except for limited atonement, then you believe in amaryllism or whatever. And I've talked to those people before. You know, I'm a four-point Calvinism. Oh, you stinking... Whatever that word is. Folks... This is what they were talking about in 2 Peter. Let's look at a few more. How about anthropomorphism? Anthropomorphism. Narrowly, the attribution of human form to God. More broadly, a description of God using human categories. Language that speaks of God in human terms. Ascribing human features and qualities to Him. So whenever you're describing God and acting like He would do something that we would do, that's anthropomorphism. Okay. I mean, do, do we really need to use that word? Now, here's a word. This, I actually learned this word from our good friend, the Calvinist, Jeff Dollar. All right? And I'm, I'm, being, I'm being sarcastic there. He's made many videos exposing me. Uh, but uh, antinomianism. Okay? We all, do we know what antinomianism is? Because we get accused of that all the time, of being antinomians. How can we be an antinomian when we don't even know what antinomianism is? We can barely say it. Well, but antinomianism is a name for several views that have denied that God's law in Scripture should directly control the Christian's life. The belief that obedience to God's moral law is not necessary for the Christian. I didn't know we taught that. We don't teach that. But he tells us that because we don't believe you've got to repent of all your sins to be saved. So therefore, God's law doesn't matter. And yet, we've got Jeff Dollar telling us we're antinomianism. And then we've got people too who, you know, uh, accuse us 
of being unbiblical because we teach moral law, death penalty, all that other kind of stuff. It's like, how can we be both of those things? Come on. You know, so we got the reprobates, you know, on the, on the moral side, you know, accusing us of going too far with God's law. And then we've got the reprobates, uh, the natural brute beast on the religious side telling us that, you know, we're antinomianism. And it's like, it doesn't make any sense. How about this one? Communicatio idiomatum. What is that? That's the concept. In the hypostatic union, hypostatic union, that sounds pretty good. I'll, I'll define that one for a minute. The hypostatic union is the union of the two natures, divine and human, in one person of Jesus. Y'all don't understand the hypostatic union. You don't know anything about the Trinity. How he was able to be God and man both at the same time. It's the hypostatic union. Do we really need to learn these terms? And I'm going to show you in a little bit too why this is dangerous. But this communicatio idiomatum, it's the concept that in the hypostatic union wherein Christ took a human nature into personal union. Attributes of both natures are predicable of the person of Christ. From this, reference can be made to Christ acting in one nature in terms relating to the other. Example, they crucified the Lord of glory, also called the communion of properties or communication of attributes. Anybody enlightened now? Y'all just need more time in seminary, apparently. That's why I don't get this stuff either. But people use these terms all the time. How about Eutychianism? When I saw that one, I bet I know what that one is. I bet that's people who fall asleep in church because of Eutychus, right? No, it's a Christological heresy taught in the 5th century by Eutychus of Constantinople who maintained that Christ had only one nature, a nature that was a mixture of divine and human nature, resulting in a third kind of nature, something called monophysticism. This teaching was declared to be heretical by the Council of Chalcedon in 453. And again, this is ridiculous. And people do, they come up with these terms so they can label you as something. Well, I don't want to be a Eutychianist. <laughs> I mean, that sounds terrible. But good. Uh, here's extra Calvinisticum. And this is the belief of the Reformed Church in agreement with the Catholic tradition that the Son exists beyond the bounds of the human nature assumed into the union of in the Incarnation. This term was coined by the Lutherans who claimed that the assumed humanity received divine attributes including omnipresence by virtue of the hypostatic union. Now again, some of y'all are feeling real bad because you don't understand any of this. Don't, because I don't really understand it either. But second of all too, what do you want to bet that these clowns that sit around talking about this stuff never go soul winning? I guarantee. Do you think that these churches, do you think any church where they get up and they use these terms, anybody's going out soul winning that Sunday afternoon? Do you think, do you think anybody's getting saved in that service? No, not at all. You know what? Because these are great swelling words of vanity. Uh, I've got a bunch of these. Some of these are... Uh, here's what I've been hearing recently too. The ontological trinity. It means the trinity in itself or the three persons as they relate to one another without regard to creation. Also called the essential of the eminent trinity. So basically, I don't even want to explain it. But <laughs> it will not help you with anything. There's supra supralapsarianism. And it's the view that in the plan made by God in eternity, His decree of election logically preceded His decree to permit the fall. So that when God chose 
some to receive eternal life and rejected all others, he was contemplating them as unfallen. This is the kind of stuff that you have to go into when you teach trash like Calvinism. This doesn't even make any sense. But this is, these, are, these are my favorite ones here. The Homo Legomena. All right. Anybody know what the Homo Legomena is? I, I heard a clip of a guy talking about the Homo Legomena. I'm sorry. Just, this, this is ridiculous. But those sections of the, the Homo Legomena, just so you all know, it's the sections of the New Testament that have been accepted since the early Christians, Christian era as being part of the body of sacred or official recognized writings. And I don't have the list of them in front of me, but the Antilogomena, right, the Antilogomena, those are written texts whose authenticity or value is disputed. Eusebius in his church history used the term for those Christian scriptures that were disputed or literally spoken against in the early Christianity before the closure of the New Testament canon. So basically, these, the scriptures that everyone kind of agreed were a part of the canon before the canon was officially made, those were the homologomena. And the ones that people argued about was the antilogomena. And so that would be the antilogomena were widely read in the early church and included the epistle of James, the epistle of Jude, Second Peter, Second and Third John, the book of Revelation, the gospel of the Hebrews, and the epistle of the Hebrews, the apocalypse of Peter, the acts of Paul, and a, bu- and a bunch of other ones. So basically the ones that they argued about was the antilogomena. Now some of them made it into our canon, like the book of James and the book of Revelation, those, uh, but those were not the original homologomena, and those, uh, those are the antilogomena. And so if you are a homologomena only Christian, you know, you don't have to put as much weight on the antilogomena ones, and you don't need to worry about Revelation. Not all the early Christians agreed on that, and if you all were as smart as I was, uh, you would follow everything I'm saying, and as I'm saying all these big words and talking really fast and confusing you and showing you how smart I am, follow all my heresies, I'll take you to hell. You know, I, you know, they slip that in there somehow. It's not that obvious. <laughs> this is all a bunch of garbage. How are these not great swelling words of vanity? How is this going to help your understanding of anything? But you do, you have these theological clowns that will sit around and talk about this stuff and they almost always are Calvinists or go-to Calvinists. When I hear people start speaking this language, I see future Calvinists in front of me. I see somebody heading down the path of the natural brute beasts is what I see. I see. Why don't we use the words of Scripture? How is it that somebody can get up and they can literally read the Scriptures and say, I believe that, and then they'll accuse you of being a homologomena or something like that. And it's just like, oh, I don't want to be a homologomena. <laughs> It's just, this is, this is exactly what the scriptures warned us was going to come. Because, so the thing is, if I do, if I want to teach you some weird false doctrine, if I want to teach something like, you can lose your salvation, I definitely don't have a verse for it. I definitely don't have a word to explain that in the scriptures. So if I can teach you that antilogomena is a good word, okay, and obviously that's not what it's about, or some word like that. If I can teach you perichoresis, I don't forgot what that even means, but let's just use that word for now. I'm not smart enough to even make up words. Okay. But if I if I can make up a word, alright, I'm not even gonna try. Alright, but if if I can if I can make up a word, then again, I can define that word. And it's in these definitions where we see all these extra biblical things. Because, for example, in the supra, supralipasarianism, 
Okay, what is that? The view that the plan made by God in eternity, His decree of election logically preceded His decree to permit the fall. Why are they even, why are we even discussing this thing? We're discussing this thing because there is this false idea that God has decreed all sin that's taken place that some Calvinists believe in. And so that creates a lot of questions. And so instead of just going to the scriptures where you're going to see very clearly that that is not the case, that there are many things that happen that are not God's will. Obviously, nothing is going to mess up God's big plan. But what they end up having to do is they have to come up with all these other doctrines. They have to come up with all these other teachings. And if we can't find those things in the Scriptures, if we can't find God in the Scriptures decreeing from the beginning of time these horrible events, then we, we just have to make up words and convince people that it's scriptural. That it's historical. And that's what everybody does. Well, this is what historical Christians taught. Are you sure? Because I'm pretty sure these historical Christians you're talking about, they sound like the brute beasts that Peter warned about. These people that are using great swelling words of vanity. Why would I listen more to the guy who came up with hypostatic union rather than the guy who was always out there preaching these three are one? Why don't we, use, why don't we talk about that? Because that's what I believe. I believe there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one. That's what I believe. I believe Jesus is God. I believe the Holy Spirit is God. I believe God the Father is God. I believe that God the Father sent the Son, Jesus, to die in the place of man. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't understand everything there is to know about God. I don't think we can understand everything there is to know about God. But what we do, we have these Greeked out theologians that go out there. And what do they do? They try to convince you that they have figured it all out. And they don't use the words of scriptures. They use their fancy theological terms where they slip in their heresies. They slip in their heresies. And then they have the gall when we're basically just saying what the scripture says to accuse us of believing antilegomena. And I'm not using any of those words right. But that's basically, that's what, that's what it sounds like to me. When they're accusing us of stuff. You know, you people that think you just believe on Christ, you antinomianisms, you antinomianists or whatever. Hey, I don't know where I got that idea, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. I don't know where I got that idea from. Oh, you people that teach eternal security or once saved always, I don't know where I got that idea that whosoever believeth hath everlasting life. I don't know where I got that idea from. I thought it came from John 3.16, but apparently, you know, I, according to these people, the historical Christians didn't believe that. Well, I, that's what, what the Scripture teaches. So this is, I, I'm really getting sick of this kind of stuff. But, you know, while we just had some fun with these words, just understand there's nothing funny about what's happened to churches as a result of these feigned words. And many like this. And there's some things that we need to learn from this. First off, here's what we need to learn from this. We should always try our very best. And I think we can do this. I think it's easier than we realize to state what we believe from clear scripture and the words of God. We shouldn't we don't we don't need to worry about defending a theological term. We don't need to worry about defending a doctrine. We don't need to do that. No, we have the scriptures. And we should just state plainly what it says. It says in John 6:63 in this, it is the spirit that quickeneth. The flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit, they are life. 
The words of God are spirit. He said, the words I speak, they are spirit, they are life. But isn't it interesting that natural brute beasts, they use the feigned words. And, and natural man, they cannot receive spiritual things. So obviously, if we're talking to a bunch of brute beasts, Calvinists, using their feigned words, they're not going to get this. They're, they're not going to understand this. But you know what I'm not going to do? I'm not going to go and play their game on their playing field with their rules and their words. You know what we need to do? We need to use the words that are spirit and that are life. And if they can't figure it out, then you know what? They can perish in their own corruption for all I care. We're going to keep on speaking the truth. We're not going to adopt their terms. We're not going to use their ways. We're not. That's not what we need to do. God's words are spiritual and they are how we learn spiritual things. 1 Corinthians 2.13 Which things also we speak. Watch this. Hey, do, we take the, do, we believe, do we take the Bible literally or not? Do we, do we follow the Scriptures and the words of God or do we follow theologies and doctrines? Okay, look what it says. Which things we also speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. What are those, those things? The words of God versus man's words. They're great swelling words. For they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. And what do we, we have the Jeff Dollars criticizing us, because we'll say, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And then he comes along with his antinomianism. And then people go, ooh, that sounds like a much bigger word. He sounds a whole lot smarter than that McMurtry guy that didn't go to seminary. And you know what? You know what they're going to do? They're going to deceive many. Just like it says in Second Peter. Just like the Bible says. But we've got to decide. Are we just going to go with what the Bible says? No, we're going to use the words which the Holy Ghost teaches. He uses the words of God. He uses words that are easy to be understood. The Bible told us that. And so while using an unbiblical word doesn't necessarily equal heresy. Okay, Don't put words into my mouth. A word that's not in the Bible, like Bible, doesn't necessarily equal heresy. Okay, The word Trinity is not in the Bible. Just because somebody says the word Trinity doesn't mean heresy. But understand... When we take those words that are not in the Scripture, it's easy for a theologian to come along and say, let me define this for you. And that's where they slip it in. That's where it's always slipped in. It's never slipped in with the words of God. It's always slipped in with the extra biblical word. Almost every single time. But just understand, so you can accept a doctrine and your beliefs could be correct. But just understand those extra biblical words always cause confusion and we deal with this ourselves even with extra biblical words that we use. Doesn't mean we're wrong in our doctrine. Doesn't mean we are wrong in our beliefs. But you know what? I'm tired of defending extra biblical words. I don't want to defend doctrines. I want to preach the words of God. I want to use the words that the Scriptures use. And I'm telling you, the more biblical I try to get or scriptural I try to get in my language the more just, you know, just ironclad our doctrine becomes. The more it exposes the error, the more it reveals where people's errors are at. I mean, I'm seeing it more and more all the time 
where I look at things that we've gotten right, and as I even correct my terminology and things, and I start using the words of Scripture more, you know what? Not only does it reveal more truth to me about what we believe, but it also reveals where their error is. And I'm realizing the error, it's literally in the words that they're using. They're using words that are not in the Scripture, and, they, and, they, and people and theologians have atta- successfully attached definitions, and that's where all the, that's where all the heresy's at. The heresy is in those definitions. And the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 14.33, For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. Let me tell you, God is the author of His Word, and God does not author confusion. You know where the confusion comes from? Perichoresis, ontological trinity, norma, normans, non-normata. I skipped that one. Norman... Norma, Normans, non-normata. What does that mean? It's Latin for the norm of norms that is not normal. This is used to describe Scripture as the standard according to which all other standards or rules of the Christian faith are measured. And the one standard which has no higher standard against which it is measured, frequently shortened to Norma, Normans. How about, this is where it's at. <laughs> Everybody wants to use those fancy Latin terms. That actually one actually sounds pretty good. All right, I guess it, I guess I should say it sounds like it's scriptural, <laughs> but I'm not going to go using that term except to make fun of these people. But uh, where was I? But let's look at some examples of some words that we use. Okay, and listen, if this makes you feel uncomfortable, that's that, that's fine. Okay, don't I, I am not changing. My position on any of these things, I'm just telling you that, you know, we don't want to cause confusion. We need to let the scriptures fix us, improve us. There's nothing wrong with this. But let's just look at some words that are causing confusion. Again, and please don't accuse me of saying something I'm not. But how about the term rapture rather than the coming of our Lord or gathering? Why, why do we insist on saying rapture? Why must we say that word? Because, again, if we called it the coming of the Lord, like Paul did in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, if we would have stuck with that term, if we'd have stuck with the term that the Apostle Paul used under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, maybe we wouldn't have a bunch of Baptists telling us that the coming of the Lord in Matthew 24 is not so, I don't want to use that word. But what have they done? You have to learn to distinguish the difference between the rapture and the second coming of Christ. How is 1 Thessalonians 4, where it's the coming of the Lord, not the second coming of Christ? Yet they insist that. I mean, folks, go, if you go on Facebook, I, I shared a reel where I, used, I did a short 60 second reel about the coming of the Lord and I used scriptures about the coming of the Lord. And I have been inundated with people that's talking about the second coming, not the rapture. No, they're about the coming of the Lord. It literally, and, and it is, it is the event of 1 Thessalonians 4. It's so easy to prove. But theologies have taught people these are different events. Theologies have done that. And people are literally saying, you have to distinguish the difference between Christ coming for His saints and coming with His saints. 1 Thessalonians 4 said He's coming with His saints. It literally says that in chapter 4 and in chapter 3. He's coming with His saints. 
But yet, you people, you don't know how to rightly divide. And they do. They throw in their extra biblical terms. Where if we called it our gathering together, then it would be really hard when he's sending his angels to gather his elect to think that that's a different event than what we see in 1 Thessalonians 4 and in 2 Thessalonians 2. I beseech you by the coming of our Lord and our gathering together unto him. But yet, they, they will still tell you Matthew 24 is a different event than what we see in 2 Thessalonians 2. It's using the same words. It's using the same words. Yeah, but the theologians and Clarence Larkin and Schofield, they came up with these extra terms and they categorized the one as the rapture and the other one as the second coming. I don't care what those guys did. This is what the Word of God says. And so, if the more... I'm telling you, it drives people crazy when you just use the terms the Scripture uses. When I, I'm seeing it more and more. I've been doing it on purpose on these videos. I'm just using the terms that the Bible uses and I'm using Scriptures where it uses those same terms and I've got all these people coming and correcting me with theologies and doctrines and extra-biblical words rather than the Word of God. How about even the term... Okay, Again, don't get uncomfortable... Okay? But even the term post-tribulational. Post-tribulational. Let's just admit it. The term tribulation, that is the term that's in the Bible. That word is in the Bible. But is it describing a seven-year period? Daniel's 70th week? All these things that Clarence Larkin? And sometimes people do that, where they have successfully taken taken words from the Scriptures, and then they've attached a new definition to them that doesn't fit the Scriptures. And that's what Larkin has done with that. And so, when we say post-tribulational, understand 99% of the time we're talking to people who've been infected by the leaven of Clarence Larkin. And you know what they hear? They hear post-seven years every time. Where if we just... Said, you know, if we just if we said something too, more like I believe he's coming before his wrath, that drives him crazy, because all those verses we've not been appointed under wrath, that proves pre-trib. Oh, but wait a minute, that's what those pre-wrath people believe too. They use that. We use that word, that verse. Why don't Why don't we do these things? Because then it forces these people to define tribulation from the scriptures. It forces them to define it, the define wrath. From the scriptures. And you know what's going to happen if they define tribulation from the scriptures and wrath from the scriptures? It's going to lead them right to our position. That's what it's going to do every single time. But you know what we do? We often play on, with their rules. We use their words. We use their definitions, their terms, even the extra biblical ones. No, we need to stick to the words of the Bible. We need to use its terms, its definitions, and we will win that battle. They don't know what to do when we use those terms. We've, we've, got, we've got to keep it going. How about even replacement theology? Now, here's the thing about replacement theology. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not trying to pick anybody. Okay? If you are in, if you hear a new IFB preacher preaching on replacement theology, I'm probably going to agree with everything he says. For sure. But did you know that there's other definitions of replacement theology out there? There's other ways that it's preached. There's a, there's a Catholic version. There's a Protestant version. There's all kinds of different versions of it out there. And often what we find ourselves doing, and what I find myself doing, is when I see people trying to debunk that replacement theology, they're talking about a replacement theology that we don't even believe in. You know what I wish we could get these people talking about? Abraham's seed. Wouldn't that be interesting if we were talking more about Abraham's seed? 
You know, if we talked about, if we used the, the terms of Scripture used, you know, if, if they had to define what it means, it says, for they are not all Israel that are of Israel. That's what we should be talking about. What does it mean to be of Isaac? What does it mean to be Abraham's seed? What does it mean? To, what, what, do all the, what, is, what are these terms that the Bible uses mean? We do that. You know what that's? If people are forced to learn what Abraham's seed is and to find Abraham's seed according to the Scriptures and not one of these crazy theologies, you know where that's going to lead them? Right towards us. Where they're not going to be supporting fake Israel anymore. They're, they're, not, they're not going to be able to do that kind of foolishness. But unfortunately, we often go along. Again, if we start talking about eternal salvation rather than eternal security. Again, I believe in the doctrine of eternal security, meaning a person can never lose their salvation. But here's the thing. What if we went to places like Hebrews 5, verse 7, where it says, "...who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him, that was able to save him from death and was heard..." And that he feared, though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all that obey him. What if we talked about eternal salvation? What if we talked about that? How do you lose eternal salvation? How do you, do, how do you lose everlasting life? If you lose it, it's not everlasting. If you lose it, it's not eternal. It doesn't make any sense. But let's just add a word in there like security. Well, I can't find that word associated with that in the Scripture. But the truth is, I can find the statement eternal salvation. Everlasting life. Let's say it that way. Let's not give these people the dignity of saying they are deniers of eternal security. Let's call them what they really are and deniers of eternal salvation that Jesus Christ Himself is the author of. Jesus Christ is the author of eternal salvation. What they are describing does not, it, it, it is not eternal salvation. It, it is not, it's a partial salvation. It's a temporary salvation. There is nothing in the Scripture that teaches a temporary salvation. It's all eternal. It's all everlasting. It's all forever. These are the terms the Bible uses. Let's not give people those digni- that, the dignity of that, let's call it for what they are. They deny eternal life. They deny eternal life if they believe that you can lose your salvation. You can't find that anywhere in the Scripture. And so that's, well, let's just call it the way it actually is. We need to stay away from doctrines and just make sure our doctrine is correct. And let me tell you, adding a letter makes a difference. For example, he saith not, and two seeds as of many. Oh, you're you're strange. Paul made a very important distinction there. He saith not in the seeds as of many. Because there were people back then thinking that that meant descendants. Paul said, no, 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 no. Seed. Jesus. One. That's what it's about. Let's not add anything to the Scriptures. And what does it say in, 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 in doctrines? Did you know every time the Bible uses the word doctrines, it's negative? Every time. Uh, and um, I'm not even, I'm not even going to go through all of them. I, there's, there's a bunch, but Matthew 15, 9, but in vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. Doctrines come from man. Doctrine comes from God. 
Matthew 7, 7, Howbeit in vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines, the commandments of men. Colossians 2, 22, Which all are to perish with the using after the commandments and doctrines of men. And you know who else comes up with doctrines? 1 Timothy 4, 1, Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. That's who comes up with doctrines. Hebrews 13, 9, Be not carried about with divers and strange doctrines. For it is a good thing that the heart be established with grace and not with meats, which have not profited them that have occupied therein. And, let me, and listen, again, I'm not, I'm not trying to be nitpicky. I am not coming here today to just, to just condemn everyone who is going to do tomorrow what we were doing yesterday. That is not what I'm here to do. You all understand that? You will probably do this again in the future. I will probably do this again in the future. Because some of these are bad habits that are hard to break. But again, this is something I am working on myself. I want to get more biblical in my terminology. I want to use my words uh, more like the Scripture uses these things. I do think, I think if we're picky on this stuff, when it comes to the things that we have stood for, I believe this strengthens us in a great way. I think it's accurate. I think it makes it difficult for people to slip in these false doctrines and things. But even just things like the reprobate doctrine. Okay? Now again, if I hear a new IFB preacher preaching on the reprobate doctrine, I'm probably going to agree with almost everything he says. But almost. Sometimes, I've heard some weird things said in the name of the reprobate doctrine. But let me ask you this. Last time, do you, do you subscribe to the reprobate doctrine? Define it for me. Can somebody tell me the new IFB definition of the reprobate doctrine? Okay. Well, if you look up the doctrine, the reprobate doctrine, I googled it, and I got the doctrine of reprobation. I like the sound of that even better. This is from the Gospel Coalition. The definition. Reprobation is God's eternal decree whereby He foreordained that certain persons would be excluded from the number of those saved by grace and that those same persons would instead experience just wrath. Do we believe the doctrine of reprobation? That's a stinking Calvinist doctrine. That's a doctrine of the natural brute beasts. And you cannot find that teaching in the Scripture. But yet, look at that. The doctrine of reprobation. That sounds good to us. We like the, we like the sound of that. But yet, listen to that. that defini- you heard that definition. You can't find that anywhere in the Scriptures. You can't find it. It ain't there. Well, we'll redefine it. Again, I understand what people are trying to do. I, I understand that. But in reality, if someone were to ask me what I believe about it, again, they're probably referring to the new IFB, reprobate doctrine. But there's no new IFB glossary of you know, theological terms. So what, it, so what does that even mean? Does it just mean what the new IFB is typically preaching on that subject? And so who, who can affect that? Does it have to be the high-ranking new IFB pastors or every one of the underlings too, who sometimes say some things that's like, yeah, you took that a little too far. That was kind of weird, you know. Well, part of the reprobate doctrine is the teaching that, you know, reprobates are full of all unrighteousness, therefore they're guilty of all sins, and they're probably all pedophiles. You know, and I've heard some kind of teach that before, and so it's like, so really, I've got to accept the part of the reprobate doctrine where, you know, every reprobate is a pedophile, even just doctrinal reprobates, and it's just like, this is sounding kind of stupid. And again, here, what do you believe about? I do believe there are some people that God has given over to a reprobate mind. Like Romans 1 says, I believe that those people have. They have been 
rejected. That they are reprobate. They are rejected by God. I believe these are these are scriptures. These are words we can find in the scriptures. I for sure believe in that. I believe these people often manifest themselves by doing the abominable, by doing the disgusting things. When you see men with men working that which is unseemly, when you see women leaving the natural use and going into that which is against nature, you know these people I believe have been given over to a reprobate mind. I believe all that. I do. But again, why do I have to, you know, do we, are, are we sure we want to just accept these doctrines, these doctrines and everything that comes with it? Okay, how about we check to see if the teaching is sound? How about when somebody gets up and they're preaching on reprobates, is what they're preaching from the scripture today? That's what we ought to be checking up on. Was that a scriptural sermon that we just heard? Did they rightly divide the word of truth? Because I'm not interested in really going around and just defending doctrines, defending what a group is preaching. You know, I, again, it, it can be too confusing. And then if somebody updates a little bit, really, I got to go along with that now. You know, I I don't I don't think that's necessary. And so the simple fact is, said so if I were to write out my own definition of the reprobate doctrine in my own words, even if it was biblical in what it presents, just understand. What I wrote, my definition still isn't the Word of God and it won't have the same power. It would be something people could use later and try to twist my words to teach something I probably never intended to teach. You realize most of the time when I hear people debunk the reprobate doctrine, they typically are debunking things I've never even heard a new IFB preacher preach. Like, that's not what they teach. That's not what they say. In fact, when I hear people debunking what certain groups you know preach about the Trinity, they're teaching whatever you know. I, I don't think that's what they mean. I don't think that's what they say. I think you're just trying to force people into a camp. You're using a you're using an extra biblical word here. Something weird is going on. And sadly, what often happens when these extra biblical words and phrases become mainstream, men usually get associated with them. This is why the natural brute beast Calvinists love this type of thing. Most people defend their theology by those who supposedly believed it. Well, this is what all your Baptist forefathers believed. Well, first off, I kind of doubt that, but even if that were true, it's against the Scriptures, so who cares? I've got this Calvinist clown that I might be doing a live stream with that's been calling me out on all that stuff. You're denying everything the songwriters and the King James translators. Hey, Am I off from the Scripture? That's why you just keep asking. Am I off from the Scripture? Is what I'm saying foreign to what we read in the Scripture? Well, it's foreign to church history. Hmm, I'm looking. I'm looking for church history in here between the year, you know, first century and now. No, show me where I'm wrong here that in these words that are spirit and that are life. They can't do that. They want to talk about John Calvin. They want to talk about Martin Luther. They want to talk about all of these dress-wearing, baby-baptizing heretics, brute beasts. And so this attack on the Word of God through feigned words of man is having a devastating impact. And it's not like we weren't warned. This is exactly what Peter said was going to happen. And right now, the IFB, they're getting creamed by the word legalism. Legalism. What, what, what did I do? 
you said that we should you know, obey this commandment. That's legalism. That word's not even in the Bible. That's not even in the Bible. But yet they're creaming the IFV with that all the time. Why can't they accuse us of something, of a word that we're using? Why can't they use us of how we're uh, you know, teaching a verse of Scripture? No, what, they, what have they done? They've come up with that word legalism. They've demonized it. They've attached a bunch of things to it that like nobody in the IFB even teaches. And then they just scream it all the time. And then you've got these wimpy little soy boy types that are these you know, recovering fundamentalist wannabes that are trying to distance themselves from all that. It's like, first off, it's fake. It's a feigned word. They made it up. It's not even in the Scriptures. We don't need to worry about it. What we're doing is not against the Scriptures. So you know what? I'm not worried about being labeled by a bunch of natural brute beasts. If a, natural bunch, if a bunch of natural brute beasts want to label me a legalist, then go for it. I don't really care. And why aren't they attacking independent Baptists? Why aren't they attacking independent Baptists with words that are in the Bible? Why aren't they doing that? Why aren't they attacking us for what we teach on eternal salvation? Why don't, why don't they attack us with biblical words? They, they can't because we're fine there. Legalist does not exist in the Bible, but the natural brute, in the natural brute beast word, it, world, it does exist. And you know what? That term natural brute beast, that's in the Scriptures, and I can use that term. And you know what? The Scriptures use that term to explain people who privily bring in damnable heresies through feigned words. Tell me people who use these words are not, fit, do not fit that description. Tell me a group that this fits better than these Calvinist types using their fancy theological terms, these seminary types. It's exactly what the Bible describes. And you know what? We need to, we need to stand against it, continue using the words of God. That will defend our doc, doctrine better than any word that we come up with, any doctrines that we uh, come up with. Let's use the words of God. So with that, let's pray to your Lord. I thank you so much for your words and the, the instructions that it gives. And Lord, it's just amazing sometimes when we actually just pay closer attention to your words and how accurate they are. And uh, Lord, you definitely knew what was coming. And so Lord, I pray you'll help us and I pray you'll bless other preachers. I'm thankful for the other preachers that are out there uh, that are sounding the trumpet on these things. And I pray you'll help us to make a difference. Help us not get caught up in these great swelling words of vanity, but just use uh, your pure words that you have preserved for us in a miraculous way. In your name we pray. Amen.